exiles from Babylon and them going to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. They'd been destroyed 70 years earlier by the Babylonian Empire. <clears throat> Everybody have Ezra 3? Let's have prayer. Father, tonight, as we look at this story, this historical account, I pray that we would see parallels in uh, your people then and in us now. God, uh, your people on a national level and in us uh, also on a personal level. Parallels are what needs to be done in our life when sin comes in and wrecks things, when sin destroys things. Father, show us that we need to return to the basics and we need to keep uh, returning and, and start with first things first. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> now, I'm not going to preach too hard at you this evening. I know it's pretty hard this morning. Uh, somebody made a comment, you know, preacher, you said you was over, but we really didn't pay any attention. i got to be honest with you, I didn't pay any attention either. Uh, I quit because I got tired, didn't have anything else to say, I guess. But uh, uh, tonight, my voice holds out. What I want to do, I want to speak to you and as I prayed on the topic of first things first. You know, anything you're going to do, say you're going to start a project, you need to know where to start at, right? You need to start at the beginning, first things first. So, talking about project, let me ask you something. How many of you have had a project around the house, and you've needed to take care of it, you've wanted to take care of it, but you kept putting it off? You put, yeah, oh, there you go. Thank you, Nick. You're the first one to raise your hand, buddy. God bless you. Uh, I thought maybe I was the only one that ever done that. Uh, but you put it off, you put it off. It's hard, it seems like it's hard to find the time to get it started. To get it started and you worry about having the time to complete it. But eventually you take that proverbial plunge and you decide you're going to start this project. You get all the stuff together you need it, need to do the project. You go out to start the project and then you stare at it in disbelief and you ask yourself, where do I start? How do I begin this? Have you ever been there? Something like that? Well, I believe that that probably would have been the attitude on the minds of the Jewish leaders and the people who returned to Jerusalem after being 70 years in exile in Babylon. Now, as part, and remember, we talked about this some last week, as part of God's sovereign plan, Cyrus, king of Persia, he issues an edict inviting all the Jews who want to go back to Jerusalem uh, to return there to rebuild the temple. He says, if you want to do that, that's fine, go ahead. And Cyrus, who was a pagan king, he allowed this and he even brought out the vessels that Nebuchadnezzar, another pagan king before him, had stole from the house from the temple so that those vessels could be returned to the rightful proper place. Now history tells us that roughly around 50,000 people returned to Jerusalem from, uh, from Babylon. And when they returned, history and biblical I mean, secular history and biblical history both tell us that what they found was that the city and the temple and the walls, everything was in far worse shape than they could ever anticipate. I mean, it was a literal mess. Remember, the majority of these people, these exiles, they had never seen the city of Jerusalem, uh, much less seen or worshipped in the temple. So those who had seen the Jerusalem, Jerusalem and seen the city and seen the temple, I can just imagine that they were, were devastated when they got back to Jerusalem and they saw the damage because they had probably heard for 70 years the damage that Babylon had done, but it never sunk in until they actually saw the results of the demolition of their holy city. Now again, according to biblical and according to historical, I mean secular historians, 
Jerusalem at that time was a city in ruins. The Babylonians did quite a number on it, on the city, on the temple, and again, on the walls. Not only did Babylon, I want you to think about this, not only did they decimate the city and the temple, but they had also decimated the people. They had decimated the way of life. National identity and worship of the Jewish people were gone. Those who remained, they had lost their national. They had lost their religious uh, distinctives. Uh, Foreigners had come in from a national and religious perspective. They had moved in. They had taken advantage of the situation. They had been... Uh, began to intermingle with the Jews who remained. Now this task facing these exiles who had been in Babylon was, was more than just a building campaign. The task that they were facing, it was, it was more than just mortar and bricks. It was about people. It was more than cleaning up debris and rebuilding the temple. It was about revitalizing, reviving, and rebuilding a people. Their assignment... Actually, and they began to grasp this, I think, was more about, uh, more than, than, than just restoring a sense of, of national identity. I believe they began to understand that, that they were part of God's plan to fulfill and keep His promises. The promises that He made to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, and to David. And yes, because these promises had to do with the land. But understand, the promises were more important than just the land. God's promises were not just about the land. God's promises pointed to a Savior that would one day come. Again, these promises were about people, uh, a people of God's choosing, a people of God's own possession, uh, a people whom God was going to set His glory and His name on so that they would be a light to the nations. They would be a light to the world. We get ahead of this in verse 1. Look at uh, Ezra 3, verse 1. It says, Now when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in the cities. The people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Now the people, they were scattered, now they gathered. They had been separated and dispersed. Now they were assembled as a nation again, as a people before God. Now these men and women have arrived in Jerusalem after months of travel and after what I'm sure was a difficult and arduous journey. And they find themselves staring at an absolute mess. They're faced with an overwhelming task. And they probably begin to ask themselves, where do we begin? Where do we start? What's the, what's the starting point? Now, to answer that question, I think they need to ask a different but a related question. And they need to be asking, instead of where do we start or how do we begin, they need to be asking, how do we get to this point? What happened to cause all this in the first place? Now, we can answer that question if I asked you to say, what happened to cause all this destruction that they returned to? If you answer it from a secular historical point of view, you're going to say, well, uh, Babylon rose to power. Babylon were the big boys on the block. They were the strongest nation. They conquered people who didn't play by their rules. They took them into exile. Babylon, again, was the biggest player on the world stage. They won the day. That's the end of the story. Now, if you answer that question that way, Folks, how did all this take place? How did all this happen? You would be correct in the assessment, but I'm going to tell you, you'd be very short-sighted in your assessment. While your historical facts and your logic may be correct, it doesn't tell the whole story. So let's recap just a minute. We learned last week, while looking at Ezra 1, that we cannot be neutral about how we view history. Amen? Now, my view of history is shaped 
by my view of God. And my view of God is that God is a sovereign God. And God is in control. So this rising to power by the Babylonian Empire and this falling from power by the Babylonian Empire, it did not just happen to just happen. There was a reason behind it. And the reason was a divine reason. I want you to listen to a passage of Scripture. And you know this because if you're here on Wednesday nights or or was it Sunday nights when I preached through Jeremiah? Does anybody remember that? What, what night was it, Steve? Wednesday. Thank you, brother. I knew I was right. It, it was Wednesday. <clears throat> Had one of those memory lapses talked about this morning. But I want you to listen to Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning verse 8. God's talking to the prophet Jeremiah. He's telling what's going to happen to the people. Said, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words. Verse 9 of Jeremiah 25. Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, declares the Lord, and I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will take from them the voice of joy and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. And in verse 11 of Jeremiah 25, God says, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, folks, according to these verses that I just read, Babylon comes against Jerusalem and the surrounding areas because God sent them as an instrument of his judgment, his chastisement on his people. And Nebuchadnezzar, who was not a believer, who did not worship God, he was used by God. He was appointed by God, directed by God, to bring judgment on his people. Why? Because of their sin. Because of their rebellion. Remember I told you last week, Adrian Rogers, you say that God can strike a tremendous lick with a crooked stick. That's what he did with Nebuchadnezzar. And discipline his people. Now, how and why, again, did they get to the mess to begin with? Because of sin. Because of their rebellion against God. The nation was exiled. The city, the temple destroyed. Because the people had forsaken God. You go back and study the history. You're going to see they did the very thing that God had warned them not to do. And they did it anyway, folks. Sin and rebellion. God said, if you turn from me, if you rebel from me and you don't have a heart of repentance, you're going to pay the price. That's exactly what happened to them. Sin had left everything in ruins. And so 70 years later, there's a group of Jews that are returning to Jerusalem and they're going to try to rebuild. Now, folks, I think that all of us, we can relate to this Uh, on a personal level. Sin ruins everything it touches. Amen. Rebellion against God, rebellion against God and idolatry. It does not lead to blessing. It always leads to destruction. It always leads to devastation. I want you to think about this. How many times have we seen lives absolutely destroyed because of sin? How many families, how many marriages are damaged many times almost beyond repair because of sin? How many churches have been devastated, have split, and and, and it's all because of sin, uh, sinful pride or or, uh, self-centeredness in the church? How many times have we found in our own lives the shambles that sin leaves behind. I mean, I think we can all relate to that. Now, at the start of the message, remember I asked a question. Where do they start? What's their first step in rebuilding? 
Now, as we answer that question for them in relation to the temple, to the city, and to the walls, and to the people, uh, folks, we're going to be answering that question for ourselves as well. Well, what, what do we do when our lives are torn apart and devastated because of sin? What do we do? Where do we go first? I mean, when we need revival and we need that, that, that renewal and our spiritual lives put back together again, what do we do? Well, what I want us to do tonight is see what they did and ask ourselves if what they did, if there's some parallels there for us. So let's look at verse 1 through 6 to begin with. <clears throat> now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, the son of Josedek, and his brothers the priest, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of God of Israel, the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on, now notice this, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So they did what they were instructed by God's word. Now, look at verse 3. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. They celebrated the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the fixed number of burnt offerings daily according to the ordinance, as each day required. And afterward, there was continual burnt offering also for the new moons, for all the fixed festivals of the Lord." that were consecrated and from, from everyone who offered a free will offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. So what's the first thing they do? If you notice, first thing they do, they begin to rebuild the altar. Now let me say this, there's a significance in the timing of this first step. They gathered in the seventh month. Now, you may not know this. If you know Jewish history, you do. The seventh month was a high point. It's the most sacred uh, month on the Jewish calendar. Let me give you some scripture. According to Leviticus 23, 23, the first day of the seventh month was a day of solemn rest. It was to be proclaimed by trumpet blast. The tenth day of the seventh month was the day of atonement. Now, folks, that was a reminder that the daily, weekly, and monthly sacrifices made at the altar of burnt offering was not sufficient to atone for sin. Number three, on the 15th day, according to Leviticus chapter 23, on the 15th day of the seventh month, they began the festival of booths, which would, would run a week long. Now, I bring all of this to your attention because the first step they made was not one that dealt with cleanup. It didn't deal with construction. It didn't deal with city or government permits. The first thing they dealt with was that an act of repentance, worship, and obedience. That's the first thing they did. They went back to the basics. Now, they gathered together all the priests. They rebuilt the altar of the God of Israel. They set the altar on its foundations according to the law of Moses. They began to offer sacrifices and worship. Now, why did they rebuild the altar before they started rebuilding the temple? I'll say it again. Because rebuilding the altar was an act of worship. It was an act of repentance. It was an act of obedience. It was repairing what had been broken. And what was it that had been broken? More important than the temple. More important than the walls and the city. What had been broken was the people's fellowship with God. And it had to be fixed. And they had to start with first things first. Now you need to understand this, the altar was set outside the holy place, that was a link between God and man. At that time it was the center of their religion. It was a place where sacrifices for sin 
was made. Uh, it was a place where atonement was made. You go back and study the history of the Jewish people. Altars played a very prominent role in their history. From the, the first one that Abraham built when he entered into the land. To the one that the people built when they crossed over into the promised land. It marked God's covenant with them and their covenant with God. So sacrifices were offered on that altar after it was rebuilt to restore what had been broken again, their relationship with God. Now the altar was a place of repentance and worship. The altar was a place of brokenness and a place of healing. Here's what I want you to get. These Jewish people, they wanted to start over. They wanted a new beginning. They wanted to pick up the pieces that sin had left strewn about in their lives. And they wanted to start, number one, with the first step, Having a solid relationship with God. Now, I don't know what you're going through in life. I don't know what you may face. I don't know how sin may have damaged your life and your heart. But I can tell you this. If you want what's broken to be fixed, it better start with repentance, obedience, and worship to God. When we have blown it because of sin and we got that debris and that rubble in our lives laying around, what do we do? You know, it may be different in your life what it is in my life, and I'm going to be honest with you. Too often, I know what I should do, but that's not what I first do first. You know, what I should do and what I do first usually are two different things. Now, if you're like me, I can tell you what I do a lot of times. When there's a situation, a problem like that, I try to fix it myself. I try to get all the pieces. I'll put it back together. I'll take care of it. Uh, you know, I, I've got it worked out. It's no big deal. I don't get back to the basics until I reach a point of brokenness. Can anybody else admit to that? And when I reach that point of brokenness, I realize, hey, you wasted your time all along. You can't fix this. Well, let's talk about the basics. What are the basics? Where do we go and what do we do when we need reviving in our lives and we need to be put back together? Uh, do we just ignore the broken pieces and the chaos around us? No, absolutely not. The place to begin is with the altar. The altar, that's a place of confession, repentance, sacrifice, a place of renewal. So, I know we're talking Old Testament here. Let me ask you, Christian. What is our altar as a Christian? Or better yet, better question is, who is our altar as Christians? The Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. Our altar is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our sacrifice. He's the one that we have to run to. That we have to turn to. We come first to Him with confession and repentance. Let me read you this passage out of the New Testament. And you're familiar with this passage. It's in 1 John, beginning in 1 John 1, verse 9, all the way to 1 John 2, verse 2. If we confess our sins, He is faithful, talking about Jesus. He is faithful and, and just or righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His word is not in us. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins alone, but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is our sacrifice. He is our altar. When our life has been reduced to rubble because of sin, He's the altar we turn to. He's the altar we run to. You remember what God said to Solomon about the temple? Now, this is in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, beginning verse 12. And you're probably familiar with verse 14, but oftentimes people take it out of context. So let me try to get it in context for you. 
Beginning in verse 12, 2 Chronicles 7. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon at night and said to him, Now God is talking to him about the temple. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. If I shut up the heavens so there is no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open, my ears attentive to the prayer offered in this place. Let me explain something to you, Christian. If we're going to offer a prayer to Almighty God, if we're going to have God move in our lives and we're going to have God renew uh, what has been broken, restore what has been broken, we must go through Jesus Christ. Amen? Just like with salvation. He is our altar. He is our sacrifice. Warren Wiersbe said this. He said, spiritual revival... It comes from laying the foundations again. The foundation of repentance, confession, prayer, and obedience to the Word of God in faith. Now, for them, for the Jewish people, laying the foundation again, it was more, uh, it was about more than just brick and mortar. It was about laying the foundation for their lives as a people again. Now, Christian, there's only one foundation for us, and Paul makes it very clear For us, that that foundation is Jesus Christ. So listen to me. If we're going to work, we're never going to do the work of the kingdom until, first of all, we've given ourselves fully to the king. That means surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul, I think it was in Romans 15. Uh, Again, memory fade. Uh, Either Romans or Acts. Paul, Paul talks about, he commends the church at Macedonia. And he says that they went way above and beyond in their gift. And the reason they were able to do that, to go beyond in their gift, was because they had given all themselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot rebuild. Friend, you cannot find revival until you first go back and give yourself fully to God again. I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about renewal. I'm talking about full commitment, surrender to God. So the Jews, they went back to the basics. They established their covenant relationship with God. That was their first priority. Now notice what happens next. Look at verse 7 through 9. It says, Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood from Lebanon to the sea at Joppa, according to the permission they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Verse 8. Now in the second year they're coming to the house of God it is at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadok, and the rest of their brothers and priests and Levites, and all who came from the captivity of Jerusalem, began the work and appointed the Levites from twenty years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. Verse 9. Then Jeshua, with his sons and brothers, stood united with Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, the sons of Hinnadad, with their sons and brothers, the Levites, to oversee the workmen in the temple of God. So the next thing they did after there was uh, repentance, after there was worship, after there was obedience in repairing the altar of God, then they obeyed the Lord and they started to work. They started laying the foundation to build the process of building the temple. Now let me say this, folks. Unless we go to the basics when we need that spiritual renewal, that, that spiritual rebuilding in our heart and lives, unless we go back to the basics with uh, repentance, with uh, worship, with obedience, nothing's going to be built. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 127.1, unless the Lord builds a house, 
the laborers, they labor in vain, the ones that build it. Dr. Jerry Vine says this. He says, true worship, and I want you to see how this ties together. True worship leads to work. There's no dichotomy between worship and work. Service is sweet when our worship is right. When we are right with the Lord, then service is a joy. If you never have joy in your service, then there is something wrong between you and God. I want you to look with me. Verse 10 through 13 of Ezra 3. Now when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, and the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David of Israel, they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But look at verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now part, and I want to make this real clear, part of rebuilding is, number one, learning from the past. Learning from the past. Not being bound by the past, but learning from the past. Also, part of rebuilding is seen in looking to the future. Not forgetting the past for the future, but looking to the future. I want to point something out to you. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 12. There's a contrast that exists in these verses between the old and the young. Specifically, those who had seen the previous temple and those who had not seen the previous temple. Again, look back at verse 12. Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the father's households, the old men who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy. So what you have, you got a mixture of joy and a mixture of shouts of joy and lament going on. The older men cried. Now, why do you think the older men cried? I think probably one reason was because they knew the beauty of what they were going to build. It wasn't going to hold a candle. It wasn't going to compare to what was lost. But I also believe that many of them, they maybe cried because they remembered why they lost what they lost. Why it was gone because of sin and rebellion. So these older men talking about here, they were looking to the past. Now, the younger men, they were excited. They were looking to the future. Now, let me explain something to you, church. I want you to listen to your pastor. When you're going to build, when you're going to rebuild, you need both. Look to the past and look to the future. You don't disregard one for the sake of the other. Does that make sense to you? Let me go a little deeper on this. Uh, as we get older, I think we'd all agree, we have a tendency to look back and feel a, a sense of nostalgia. You know, we, we, we often look back and oh, dream of the good old days and we forget they weren't that good to begin with. But we look back at them. And, you know, uh, and our content's not right. We forget the bad things and remember the good things when we look back. Well, I'm going to tell you, in the Jewish, the Jewish folks, in their case, they were correct when they looked back and said, man, we long for the, the old days. But let me say this. We tend to, to yearn for the past too much at times. And when we do that, we refuse to let go and face the future. And then let me say this. When we're younger, we don't care about the past. We only care about what's in front of us. The future. I want to tell you, there's a mistake in that as well. Let me explain. We cannot dismiss the past. You can't. You can't wipe out the past. Uh, you can't 
say the past doesn't exist anymore. Now, you can be forgiven of sin. You can be forgiven of the past. But the past is still the past. Now, it's gone, but it's still there. And let me tell you what we need to do with the past. We should allow the past to serve as either a motivation or as a caution for us. One or the other. Either way. A motivation or both. A motivation and a caution for us. To quote Warren Wiersbe again, he said, The past is to be a rudder to help guide us, not an anchor to hold us back. So we can't be leaning too much on the past and we can't be going so far, so hard to the future that we forget to learn the lessons from the past. And I want to say this, we should never allow this type of tension over the past and the future to disrupt us as a church. Because I'm going to tell you again, it's good because both are needed. Remember the past, but also look forward to the future. I think we can press this a little farther to a personal level. You know, we can, as Christians, we can spend our time crying over what was and what was lost, or we can celebrate the future of what can be. Because God in the past is God in the future as well. Amen? I'm going to close right here. Maybe, uh, maybe you had a very bright past that you lost or forfeited. And, and, and I'm going to tell you something. If that's the case, the past is the past. But you don't have to dwell in the past. You can learn from the past. In other words, lay that past on the altar. Give it to Jesus Christ and look to the future with anticipation. Or maybe, uh, maybe you're here tonight. You're excited about the future because you've always had a miserable past. Well, listen to me. Lay the past on the altar. Give it to Jesus. And let me tell you something else you need to do. Not only lay that past on the altar, but you need to lay your future on the altar as well. Because I'm going to tell you again. Not only did he control the past, but he controls the present and the future. Either way, what you need to do is determine not to stay where you are, but always move forward in obedience and complete surrender and commitment to Jesus Christ. You say, I've blown it in my life. Well, go back to the basics. Go back to the beginning. Repent. Repent. Commit yourself once again to Jesus Christ. Repent. And then, in obedience, begin to worship Him with your life. Back to the basics. Start with first things first. You know, and I'll say this, and I've done too many churches. I've seen this over the years. They go great guns into a project, or they go great guns into some sort of missions or, or ministry. We've got the finances, we've got the people, we've got the facility, we've got everything we need. The one thing they do not do is start at the first. God, clear our hearts. Give us direction. We praise you because you're worthy and you alone will make this succeed. Father, keep us in obedience to you. That needs to be the same thing in your personal life as well. Would you bow your heads, please? Father, I pray we would take this study, this message to heart. We would see what has transpired in the past and we would learn from it. Father, we'd understand that rebellion and sin in our lives never, ever leads to anything productive. 
But, Father, it always brings heartache. It always brings pain. It always brings devastation. And I pray that we would be reminded the best thing we can do is stay away from it. But, Father, also I pray that we learn tonight that when sin enters into our life, when we allow through rebellion that sin to take hold, and it begins to bring destruction, and, and, and our life begins to fall into shambles, we would understand that what we need to do is go back to the basics. Recommit our life to you, surrender to you in obedience and repentance and worship you. Father, I pray we'd understand the significance of a heart of worship. The significance of a, of a repentant heart before you. Because true repentance and surrender always brings worship. And true worship will always bring an attitude to work. Father, thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. You stand, please.